This week on Writers Inc. You know, I think I think the most important thing is to is to get a hold of your career and and write the book that you want to read. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, how you feeling today, bud? <laughs> you're going to go there, huh? Straight to it. Uh, yeah, so for those of you, I mentioned this on my, my Twitter feed. Like I, I went, I've been feeling really tired for like the last couple of weeks, and I couldn't figure out why. So they went in and did, did some blood work. Um, and it turns out my, my kidney numbers were like all all screwy. So I, I had a CT scan done, and they found 11 kidney stones in my kidneys. And for those of you familiar with kidney function, they're not supposed to have stones in there, and definitely not supposed to have 11 of them in there. Um, so they scheduled this um, surgery for me on Tuesday, and they went in and they, they got them all out using some kind of process that I, I forget what it's called, but the best way to explain it, it's very similar to asteroids. The doctor has a little laser and he goes in there and he just zaps each of these kidney stones and turns them into dust. So it's probably a lot of fun. And I probably paid him a lot of money in order to do that. Uh, but he, he spent four hours clearing my kidneys out. Um, so now I'm just sort of home and I'm heavily medicated and like I'm, I'm staring at my screen and like somehow I managed to, to eke out 1600 words today. I, I've got no clue if any of them are any good. For all I know, I repeated the same word 1600 times. But um, according to Scrivener, I got 1600 words clocked in. So I'm, I'm going to call it a day when we're done with this. It's probably a grocery list. <laughs> it, it, it might be. <laughs> Who knows? Did you get the vaccine? Maybe that's where your kidney stones came from. I'm going to blame it all on that. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> God damn Moderna. Um, no, I, I felt fine after that. Like I got that shot and like I came home and like I sat in a dark room and just waited for all the side effects to hit me and, and nothing happened. Mom, my kidney. You know, yeah. Like I, I feel like I got, I feel like I got gypped there. I felt fine too. I, I, I got both mine and I'm I, the second one. Everyone's like, Oh, you're going to feel something. Nope. I didn't feel nothing. So I'm good to go. Well, it sounds like Johnson and Johnson is the one to avoid if the, the news is to be believed. It's hard. So. It's hard to figure out, you know? Six well, yeah. people funny have had you... issues from seven million shots. It's like I don't know. Is that statistically? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. I was just reading that too. Like uh, you know, all these millions of people, and there's only I think it was three hundred and forty some people that are actually on record of going to the hospital after getting a shot for something they that may or may not be related to it. But like that's such a small percentage, yeah. you know, when you think about it. Like this is a pretty successful, you know, all around kind of you know campaign. What's funny too is when you. I, we might have actually mentioned this on the show before, but when you meet somebody and you tell them you got the shot, like the first question they say is, well, which one did you get? Oh, yeah, it's like, yeah. Like, it's I so know, funny how that's a thing. You know? I, I, I know everybody around here. I know exactly what shot they went. I know what Walgreens they went to or Rite Aid or CVS. You know, like I, I know which one's got the best wait time and which one doesn't. And yeah, It's so funny how that how that is. It's like a, yeah. that's a thing, you know, but that's where we are. So. Yep. 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 I'm, I'm waiting to read in the news that the shot sterilized the, the adult population of the planet and <laughs> there's going to be some crazy side effect that we haven't heard about yet, but that, that hasn't happened. <laughs> Who knows? 
It's coming. Well, all right, man. Well, we, uh, we're going to try and be efficient today and get you off the microphone and onto your couch so you can, you can rest up a little bit. Oh, I greatly appreciate that. <laughs> we get some uh, some exciting things to talk about here at the top of the show. A couple of uh, uh, announcements. First one is that um, just this week, uh, Kindle rolled out Kindle Vela. This is a brand new program. It's uh, Amazon's way of getting back into serialized fiction. So it, it feels, it seems to me like it's sort of a Wattpad knockoff in that uh, you can, as an author, you create one title and then the reader gets installments in like scenes or chapters. And I think they even use tokens to pay for them. Uh, so there's some gamification going on. Uh, it's, it's not available yet. Um, so Amazon has just announced it. I think they're trying to get authors to create content for it. And it'll be a few months before it's available to readers. But it is, um, it's very intriguing. And I, and I have a project that I was working on with, uh, with Rachel. And uh, we think we might put it into Vela just to try it out and, and see what it's like, see, see what happens. But uh, so I know JD hadn't seen it yet. But Zach, did you take a look at it yet? Yeah, I first saw it when uh, I actually uh, uh, published a book this week. So I, when I went into my dashboard to go publish, I was like, oh, what's it? and it's right there at the top. It says Kindle Vela. And then you sent me something about it. And I actually emailed uh, – first thing I thought about was I emailed our buddy Daniel Wilcox and and to kind of get his thoughts on it and to kind of get his gut reaction and because he does a lot of serialized stuff. Um, and uh, and he, he was intrigued. Uh, his – uh, you know, he was saying, I guess he did a little bit of math. He was saying it looks like 10 K of a story could net you about 70 cents, which is like not awful if you stack up a bunch of cereals, but his, his big deterrent was, it looks, I, I didn't see this, but it looks like you have to be exclusive. Yes, you do. Uh, to can't KDP. be published so, anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the, that was kind of a big deterrent for him, but uh, it looks, it's cool. I mean, it's, I think the serialized format, I, as a reader, I've never been a huge fan of it. I see the appeal of it. Um, I, I definitely think it's cool from a writing perspective. And uh, so it's obviously Amazon has some kind of data to say that like people probably enjoy reading this way. Otherwise I don't think they'd be taking the time to do this. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it works out. Well, if an author wanted to do something serialized, like what, what, without this platform, how would they do it now? Like, what, is, is there a norm for that kind of thing? Yeah, well, through Amazon, it would be a real challenge. Like, yeah. you would have to, you would have to publish a new title for every episode, so to speak. So, you know, and, and I think the way Vela is working is they're looking at like fifteen hundred to two thousand word episodes. So, okay. if you had, if you wrote, you know, a hundred thousand word book, you know, that's that's a lot of titles you'd have to publish the old way. So I think the, the idea is the reader buys or, or follows that one story. And then as episodes arrive, they fold into it. Well, I so know that's what, what it, Andy Weir, when he put out the Martian, he just did it as blog post, right? So it was yeah. serialized, but as blog post, and right. I know Josh did something similar with, um, I think it was called Carpenter's farm on, on his website, but I've never been able to figure out how you can monetize something like that. Yeah. yeah well, maybe, the big, the, the biggest deterrent for people who, who write this type of stuff from what I've heard from talking to people has been the, the delivery system and the distribution is that you have to go get people to go back on Amazon to buy a different book every time instead of just like they can buy the whole season once and then Amazon will automatically deliver it to the Kindle every time a new episode comes out. All right. So I think that's been the big and, and this seems to fix that. 
uh, like, like Jay saying, uh, and, and, and could be really huge for people who really enjoy writing. Although I think it is just an app. So it's on the Kindle for iOS yeah. and it's on the Kindle app, but it's not on the Kindle devices. And I think the yes. idea is like they give you the first three episodes are free and then Amazon charges tokens for every episode after that. So as a reader, yeah. you can you can read the first three, determine if you like it, and then you just pay as you go. So if you're in the app and you finish the scene, you're like, I want another one. You tap your token, and then the next one appears. Interesting. All right. Well, they're definitely answering a call. I mean, somebody's got to be looking for this, or they wouldn't spend the time on it. The only thing I can think of similar is you, you could probably pull it off with Patreon, um, you know, because yeah. you can charge per per public, you know, each publication you can charge on it. Um, yeah, interesting. We'll see where yeah. see where it goes. Yeah, that's a perfect segue, JD, into <laughs> uh, a, an exciting thing we're doing with Patreon. Something new uh, that we're starting this month, April of 2021. We have decided that uh, we are going to replace our monthly topic or theme based episodes with a live Q and A. Uh, so if you become a patron of the show. Not only will you be able to submit your questions as patrons have done in the past, but you'll be able to join us live on the show and ask us your questions. Uh, so we're really excited about that. If you go to patreon.com slash writers inc podcast, you'll get uh, the info. Um, there's only two levels. So there's, there's the $1 tier, which allows you to submit questions for the show. And then the $5 tier, which allows you to join us on the Zoom call and ask your question live. So if that sounds at all interesting to you, uh, make sure you check it out. We're, we're pretty excited about that. I think we should just call it Stump J. Like Stump J? Stump J. Just try and come up with a question to Stump J. <laughs> I, I don't think know. we should call it. I think we should call it JD's finally going to be on the Q&A so we can finally ask him all these questions. <laughs> we have it should be fun. I mean, because the topic, I, I love doing those, but, you know, we're kind of th throwing stuff at the wall to try and figure out what sticks. And then we get feedback after the fact as to whether people, you know, liked it or it was something they were looking for or, you know, they fast forwarded through the whole thing or whatever. At least this way we can, you know, at, at least be topical and, and hopefully provide some feedback that, that people are actually, you know, looking for and, and give a little guidance there. Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with a Q&A episode because you're, you're answering questions that your audience is asking. So it, it seems yeah. like a, it will win all the way around. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I want to give a shout out, uh, as always, to our wonderful sponsors over, over at Kobo Writing Life. Uh, Tara and her team allow you, the self-publishing uh, uh, author, to put your career in your own hands. You can go wide. You get uh, access to all their promotional opportunities. And the best part is you don't have to be exclusive. So if you are interested in finding out more about publishing wide, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com. And that brings us to the guest for the week. Who do we have, JD? Robert Dugani. Um, so this is a guy I, I've been on a bunch of panels with him. We always seem to end up on the same panels at, at various conferences. And, and he's, you know, for lack of a better way to explain it, he just sort of has the whole writer thing dialed in. Um, you know, he's, he's putting out two to three books a year. You know, he's got his process down. His publishers are, are on board with him. You know, every, everything is just sort of lining up. Um, and he's just a fun guy to talk to just because, you know, because he's got it so dialed and he's, and he's able to explain, you know, how, how he got there. Um, he's, uh, you know, that, that whole pantser and outliner thing always seems to come up and he's one of those that, that happens to be a pantser. Um, you know, so yeah, but there's I'm full full of information, and I love the fact that he's he's out there and willing to share it. He's he's a great guy to to sit down and talk to, and if you can ever take one of his classes at one of these conferences, you should jump all over it because he's a wealth of knowledge. And that's two to three books, trad pub, not self published. Yeah, that's the thing, and I'm still trying to figure out how he gets everybody to agree to do that. 
They they like to try and keep you to one a year, right? They, they do, but he's with Thomas and Mercer, so you know they, they're they're you know they're cutting edge in a lot of ways. You know they they, they they're tending they're they're breaking that mold, um, which again is is good. You know the fact that he's he's willing to to do that. You know I, if he was with you know one of the other guys, I don't know that he'd be able to pull that off. Excellent. I'm looking forward so, to the talk. All right, here he is, Robert Ducati. I need to know how it feels to be a crossword clue. <laughs> You know, I will be perfectly honest. Um, I had people call me to tell me, uh, but I didn't see it. I never saw it myself. Uh, <laughs> but I thought that was pretty cool. I think that I think the only thing I could think of that might be cooler is, is to be a Jeopardy question. You know, yes, that would, that would be good. Yeah, well, that you have something to shoot for now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, you have a, a new book coming out April twentieth in her tracks from the uh, Tracy Crosswhite series. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, it's the eighth book in the series, uh, but they're all standalone. So, I mean, you know, people can kind of pick the series up wherever they want. If they want more background info, obviously go to the beginning. But uh, it's a story where she's coming back to Seattle. She has been on a sabbatical in uh, Cedar Grove, her where she grew up, uh, where her husband still owns a home. And she now has a baby. She has a child and she's coming back to work. And it's that difficult moment that a lot of women have when they've had a child and now they have to get back to their career and they're trying to balance both. And uh, what do you do? And of course she gets back to work and she finds out that her captain who she does not get along with has filled her position with someone else because she's been away for so long, including a sabbatical for post-traumatic stress related to what happened in the prior book. So uh, he assigns her to cold cases and and says uh you know we have an opening and she can't really fight that because it's the same she's in she's in the violent crime section uh she's getting the same salary she's still the same position um and the guy that's there is retiring so uh she's hesitant to take it but after talking to him she decides to take it and of course when she starts looking at the cases there are, one comes out right away which is the disappearance of a five-year-old girl um years ago and of course that tugs on Tracy's heartstrings right away and while she's in the process of doing that investigation one of her old uh, violent crime team members uh, Kensington Rowe comes to her and says I got a missing girl I need some help you got some time and uh, she does so she's working two separate cases in this book which was which was different for me but which is probably more realistic in terms of you know what detectives are faced with you know in their jobs awesome that sounds amazing, and we'll definitely have a link in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to ask you that question that, that writers always kind of take with a grain of salt, but uh, the inspiration for this story, uh, did it come from anything specific? Um, you know, this is funny. <laughs> uh, it came from my son. Um, he's, a, he's a pretty big reader, and he's an intelligent reader, but this is all he said to me. He said, I got an idea for the opening of a story. And I said, okay, well, what is it? And he said, somebody goes missing in a cornfield around Halloween. And I thought about it. And my first reaction was, well, that sounds almost like, you know, horror or science fiction. <laughs> so, you know, Stephen King. And then I went, you know what? I think I can play with that. And it's funny. I think I have a, a, a book here. Um, 
he actually, my son actually made the cover. I mean, because oh, wow. there's the cornfield, which is really pretty cool. Um, but it was a, it was a really interesting premise and frightening. I mean, if you're a if you're a parent, you've had those moments where you take your 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 child into a, a department store, and they disappear for like ten seconds, and you just feel that rush of of adrenaline. It's like, oh my god. And, uh, you know, we had that happen a couple of times uh, with, you know, with our, ch our children where they're not gone for long, but it doesn't need to be long. And you can imagine if you're in a cornfield and, you know, your little girl wants to play hide and seek and you think, well, she can't go any further and suddenly she's gone. Um, so that was that was really where it came from. Wow. Was that the first prompt he ever gave you? Um, no, he he actually helped me with something else, too. Uh, I had been asked by. Um, by several people if I was gonna do a, a follow-up story to The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell, which was my literary novel. And, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking about it because I, I mean, I just, I, you know, like all of us writers, right? You fall in love with your characters and you hate to see them go away. And I was thinking about it and he's the one who came to me and he said, you know, dad, I wouldn't do it. He said, that book is complete. And I think you would end up just taken away from that story. and. You know, I thought about it and I thought, yeah, he's right. He's right. I mean, Sam lives a full life in that book. So, so I, so I didn't do it. So he's, he's helped me a couple of times. He's uh he's a pretty, pretty sharp, sharp young man. That's fun. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. that's really exciting. I talk to my son about story ideas sometimes and uh, it's, it's definitely a nice bonding moment. Yeah. No, I mean, is your son, uh, is he in the writing uh, side of things or? He's 18, so he's not quite sure yet, but uh, he does some creative writing at school and it's fun to talk story with him. Yeah. My, my son is much more, he's, a, he's, he's working now and he's in finance really. So, you know, story is not his thing, but um, he's got a, he's got a sharp mind. So yeah, now, I listen. Yeah. That, that's really cool. Did you then take his idea and did you sit down and sort of plot out a story or did you kind of just write into the dark and see where it took you? What was your approach? So I am a, I am an organic writer. Um, I am a terrible outliner. I, you know, I'll outline for three months and I'll start writing and I'm off my outline in the first day. And I, I begin to realize I wasted three months. Um, people ask me all the, all the time, you know, how are you putting out two and sometimes three books a year? Well, I, you know, I don't outline. Uh, I, I, and I, you know, it's fun. You, you know, this as a, as a writer, it, it's fun to sort of explore a story and see where it takes you. And really the, the, the big thing with that is um, you just can't panic. You know, when, when, you know, when you start writing and things aren't progressing as, you know, you get stuck or whatever, if you, if you, if you've done it enough, you just, you don't panic and you just think, all right, what, what's the next logical sequence here? What would, what would take place? And the other thing I think that's important is, is recognizing and understanding that your first draft is really your outline. Oh, uh, I like that. And, and, and that's what I do. I write a 400 page outline. I don't, I don't edit along the way unless it's really something big that I think of. If I think of something, I have a, I keep a spreadsheet of my chapters as I'm going and I'll, I'll go back and on that spreadsheet, I'll say, you know, this has got to happen six months earlier, or, you know, Tracy's got to meet somebody here, you know, I'll, I'll put notes to myself, but I want that first draft to just get it all the way to the end. And, and, you know, a lot of people call it their shitty first draft. Uh, and that's pretty much what it is. And then, then go back and just start layering it 
and, and editing it. Um, the layering really comes more of, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a very visual writer. So the smells, the smells, the, 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 what they're hearing, what they're tasting, that I have to go back and sort of layer in. Um, and, and so I do that when I get to the end of that, that first draft slash outline. Wow, that's that's really cool. How do, how do you approach that in the in the uh, novel writing intensive? How do you help uh, say newer writers not panic when they when they sit down to that blank page? Yeah, well, I I, I think the the big thing is everybody's different. Um, some people are fa fabulous outliners. I've heard I never asked Jeffrey Deaver this question, but I've heard he's an outliner and he's a big outliner. He's like a two hundred page outliner, uh, and it works for him. Obviously, he's very successful. So um, what I always tell my students is find what works well for you. I mean, if you're a good outliner, then by all means, you know, outline. If you're not a good outliner and you feel like you're just wasting your time, you know, try this, but understand that that first draft uh, is an outline, you know, that it's not, doesn't need to be perfect. And what it does for me, at least, um, I'm, a, I'm a guy that, you know, I don't wanna say suffers from, but I, I have low levels of anxiety. And uh, what it does for me is, is it, is it just sort of frees me up. You know, I say to myself, no one's ever going to read this except me. No one, um, no one's even going to see it. Um, it's not going to be perfect. And I'm okay with that because you know, it never is. There'll probably be changes along the way and all that. And so it just, it allows me to just have my creativity, my imagination just opens up and gets rid of all that stuff that gets in the way of our creativity. And I just, I just get to I put it down on paper and, you know, it's a word processor, you know, draft two, <laughs> page one and go back to it. <laughs> yeah. How was that transition from legal writing to writing fiction in that way? Well, um, what legal writing taught me how to do a couple of things. One was put my butt in the chair, you know, go to work every day. And I go to work every day. You know, I, I, I don't work weekends anymore. Um, but I used to work weekends uh, because I had two jobs when I was trying to make a living being a writer and, you know, wasn't doing it. So uh, it taught me, it, it really taught me how to go to work. So I go to work every day. And then the other thing it taught me is it taught me how to write quickly. Um, and, and by that, I mean, in when you're writing a legal brief in law, you, you need to, you, you can't screw around with it. The judges, judges will never thank you, but they also won't yell at you when you turn in a, a succinct brief. You know, a brief that gets to the point. It's, you know, it's the who's who's the client, what's the issue, what's the law, boom, boom, boom. And you know, in legal writing, I think my writing is very much the same way. Is is um, you know, I I I I don't tend to meander a lot. Um, it's it's I stick to the story. And one of the things I'm really proud of, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but I just got through writing the um, ninth Tracy book, first draft, and. I, every single scene is in her point of view. And I've never done, I've never done that with a Tracy book. Uh, and I've never done that in a third, third person book, but I really wanted to challenge myself and, and do that. So, um, you know, it's really kind of a, a rush forward book, which is sort of, I think what I learned in, in the legal arena. Wow. So that you really have you have a quick pace in both the macro and the micro sense. Like you're, you're producing a lot of, of works during the year and you're also sort of writing fast on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, is that 
did that come from the legal the legal writing or was uh, was that maybe something that was has been in you your whole life is that your approach to a lot of things i think it's i think it's a lot of things one i was a journalist you know so i, I wrote uh i wrote for a lot of newspapers i wrote in high school i wrote at stanford university i wrote for uh, the la times and you have to meet a deadline. I mean, that's the bottom line is you have a deadline and, and basically you write the best story you can in the time that you have. Now in, in, uh, in the, the uh, writing novel arena, those deadlines are you know, pretty far out. Right. Um, but um, you know, I, I, I just, I, I'm very good at, um, my, um, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the word, but I'm uh, multitasking. And I think that's something that that you I learned practicing law is, you know, you can be on one thing and get pulled off in, in a minute. Uh, so, you know, I really I, when I sit down to write, um, I really try to focus on just that story. Now, I might be editing another story, but at, at that moment, I'm not. I'm just I'm just going to focus on that that one story. And I get a little um, I get my world becomes very small. You know, I'm not answering a lot of emails and people will be like, you know, hey, are you all right? I haven't heard from you. And, you know, you, you, you notice like you get into that zone and, and you, you want to stay in that zone because uh, it will go away. And, and when it leaves, it's hard to get it back. Um, so, you know, I, I try to just I try to just get to the end of that first draft. And then I go, OK, I have a book here. There, there's a book here. I, if things got to change. Things got to be taken out. Things got to be added. But, but I at least have a, I have a story and I can work on that story. And for me, um, I think, you know, because of my own, um, you know, limitations, that that's really something that is calms me down and, and helps me to just focus. You have to call the guys and push the tea time back a little bit when you're in the zone. Do I have? Yeah. Well, and the tea time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I, that's, that's the other thing I think that's really important is, um, is, is exercise, you know, especially here in the Pacific Northwest where, you know, today is an absolutely gorgeous day, but I can't go to the golf course cause it's closed because they're aerating it, you know? So I'm sitting here looking out the window going, Oh my God, how do I get out? But, but, um, you know, I think it's really important to, to get out and to exercise. I think everybody with COVID uh, has become so isolated and it can become so, so difficult. And, and, uh, you know, I try to exercise every day. I think, I think that helps the endorphins, you know, I think it helps get things moving and get going. And here's the other thing that I, uh, that I always tell people, I have my very good friend, Mike Lawson, who's also a writer. He once told me that he never has a bad day writing. And I, I thought that's, that's crazy. It can't be true. But he said, what he does is if he ever gets to a stuck point, he writes the scenes that he knows are going to be in the book, even if they're not in order. So if he knows, well, I'm going to do this for the climax and I'm going to do this. I'm going to, he'll do that. And, and as he's doing that, you know, the mind starts thinking and the mind starts, the subconscious starts going, and then he's able to fill in. And I really, I really took that to heart and I, and I really started doing that. And so there's, there's rarely a day where I don't accomplish at least something toward my goal. Because I can, you know, I, I'll fall back and I'll do what Mike, Mike does. I'll say, okay, well, I'm stuck here for the moment, but I know I want to write about this other character. So I'm going to bring this in and I'll do that. Yeah. And, and you seem very multifaceted. You strike me as a guy who has a lot of different interests and, and passions. And uh, I'd love for you to tell, tell us a little bit about your uh, 
narration and how that works with your storytelling and and uh, that I'm I'm fascinated by that. Well, um, you know, I, I I do have I do have a lot of, of interest. You know, I I write across genres. You know, I I write police procedurals, I write legal thrillers, I write espionage, uh, I, literary, I got another literary coming out next September. And, you know, for me, that's sort of the beauty of my writing for Thomas and Mercer is, is, you know, they allow me to, to explore those avenues to, to, to do that kind of stuff. And I, and for me, anyway, that, that works. Um, I, I don't want to just write one character. I, I like, I love to create characters. That's really what my passion is. Is creating characters that are real and, and believable and 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 putting them them all together. Um, you know, the other thing is, um, I'm one of ten kids, which is really rare nowadays. And so, I, you know, I grew up with a lot of people around me and and a lot of different personalities. You know, I'm half Italian and I'm half Irish, so I got that that voice. You know, you can tell I'm using my hands, right? I got that Italian side of me that you know is all the stuff going on and then i got the irish side of me which is much more sort of practical and nuts and bolts and and things like that um and i think all of that comes into play and, and that's one of the things that we talk about in in the novel writing intensive is we're all different right we all come from different experiences we all we all see things in different ways because of the way we were raised or because of the environment in which we live so we all have different takes on things, but it's those takes that make us and make our characters unique if we are not afraid to use them. And I think what, what a lot of us writers have to do, what I had to do is get past that point where I was afraid to let people in and, and, and see who I was as, as a person. I often say, you know, I, my, my first books did well, but they didn't do great. And I don't think they did great because I was writing from my head and I wasn't writing from my heart. And I really think for me anyway, what works is, is to write from the heart. And that's, you know, that's, um, that's scary because when you put your heart out there, right, there's always going to be people that want to stomp on it. That, and you have to just say to yourself, that's life. There's always going to be people out there that are like that in, in any art form. You know, people can go into a museum and look at a painting and go, I don't get it. Right. And it could be the most, you know, one of the most famous paintings in the world. Uh, everybody's different. And, and I think we have to, as writers, we have to get past that and just say, this is who I am. And this, this is, this is who I am is, is what my stories are going to be like. Do you read your reviews? Um, not really anymore. Um, you know, I will, I will click on to Amazon to see the number of reviews I have and, and how quickly they're coming in and the overall rating. But really, I don't, I don't really read them because, you know, a person's like or dislike of a book is extremely personal. Um, it's, 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 you know, it, it could be they don't like my book because they, they simply don't like legal thrillers or they don't like the book because they thought it was going to be one thing and it wasn't another. And, or they didn't like the book because they didn't like the book, you know, and when people have the right, they have the right to do that. Um, I don't read the review services really, except that my, my publishers, you know, they, they use them to help promote my books, like the AP, uh, Publishers Weekly, um, you know, Kirkus and all those ones. Again, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one individual that has their own personal take. And I, you know, I've been fortunate that I've gotten some nice reviews, but if I don't get a nice review, it's, I don't immediately think to myself, the book sucks. I just think, well, that person didn't like it. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't what they wanted. Uh, so, 
you know, uh, you know, I'm also not naive, but I go through a long vetting process and I, you know, I'm sure you do as well. And that vetting process is first myself, then it's one of my agents, then it's a second agent, then it's my editor, then it's my developmental editor, then it's my copy editor who, who will get involved and say, hey, I don't understand this. And then I have a, a, um, a, cold, a cold read at the end of all that. And so if all of those people tell me this is a good book, I feel pretty confident that I'm putting a good book out there. If they all said this book is sucks, well, the book would never see the light of day, right? I'd, I'd go back and I'd have to really make change to it. So, um, so I feel good about the process. I feel, I feel like by the time the process reaches the public, I put out the best book I could. Yeah, it sounds like you have a team that you trust and that's, that's really important. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it wouldn't be a Writer's Inc. episode without mentioning Stephen King. So I have to ask you, uh, what do you find so inspiring about The Green Mile? First edition. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, it sits right here and I read it every day. Um, what inspires me is I just, I think this book is brilliant. I really think this book is brilliant, both in terms of its content. I mean, just the whole storyline. You know, like he, he, you have this mouse in this book and, you know, you're thinking, what, what is the mouse for? What is the purpose of the mouse? And then suddenly it's like, oh, my God. It, it's just I mean, it's just it's just brilliant. Um, but the other thing is about Stephen King is he's so good with his senses on every page that you will believe whatever he writes you know, if he writes that this that this African American man on death row uh, can 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 you know can read your mind and and then expunge it in the form of nat, like black gnats, uh, you believe it. If you read eleven twenty two sixty three and the main character walks down a staircase in the back of a restaurant and and comes out in nineteen fifty nine, it's so vivid you believe it. You know, so. I try to strive to make my books believable. And I figure if he can do it with all the woo-woo stuff he's got in there, you know, hopefully I can do it um, by just, you know, striving for that kind of excellence. Nice. Love that. Yeah. Uh, I know that you have a, a landmark birthday this year. I do as well. I think I'm uh, 10 years younger than you, almost exactly. So, uh, what advice would you give to a writer um, entering their 50s? What should they be looking out for? Um, you know, I think, I think the most important thing is to, is to get a hold of your career and, and write the book that you want to read. I think when I started in this business, um, well, before I started in this business, when I wanted to be in this business, um, Grisham and Scott Turow and, and John Lascois and Phil Marglin burst onto the scene with legal thrillers. And so I said, I'm going to write legal thrillers because I'm a lawyer too. Um, and I liked the books that I wrote, but they weren't necessarily the books that I wanted to read. And I grew up reading um, The Old Man and the Sea, The Count of Monte Cristo, The Great Gatsby, you know, of mice and men, that what was put in front of me at a very young age by my mother. And I love those books, The World According to Garp, A Prayer for Owen Meany, um, uh, uh, The Great Santini. 
these stories about lives lived. And so what I've tried to do with my Tracy books is make it a story about a human being and make it a story about a real world and real people and living their lives. Um, the extraordinary life of Sam Hell was about a, a you know a young boy's life. Um, the book I just got through writing literary novels again it's a it's a story about life and people. Those are the books that I want to read. Those are the books that I have read. And so I think it's really important to um, to write the book you want to read because if you're passionate about it, that passion will come out in your storytelling, and that's what people will pick up on. They'll pick up on that passion. And it's hard. I know it's hard because we also have to make a living. And so you're trying to do the things you need to do to get the book sold and, and get it out there. Um, but that can sort of be a, a double-edged sword because if, if the books aren't, if you're not passionate about it and your readers aren't passionate about it, your sales are probably not going to be what, what you would like them to be. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh, got one last question for you. It'd be a nice way to kind of close out the conversation. Um, you've been in the, in the business a long time. Uh, where do you see the publishing industry headed in these, in these crazy couple years we've had? Yeah. You know, that it, I don't know that anybody really knows. I think, I think that, um, I hope we, I hope we keep, uh, I hope we keep a good number of publishers. I'm always saddened when I see a publisher get absorbed by another publisher because, you know, to me, what that means is probably fewer books and fewer opportunities for, for new writers coming out and, and, and you know, putting their work out there. Um, I, I, you know, I know that the ebook uh, has become commonplace now. You know, it's sort of like in, I think in five years, the electric car will be just commonplace, uh, if not sooner. And, and I think, you know, we're sort of going down that, that path. But, but what I, what I really hope is I, is I hope that the industry continues to evolve and we continue to have different paths for writers to get their books out to the end of the public uh, and to get them read. Uh, you know, I, 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 I had a real, I had an epiphany, you'll probably laugh at me, uh, but I had an epiphany one day, I was in the garage and I had author copies of my books. And I said to myself, what good are these books doing in my garage? <laughs> books are made to be read. And so I started just taking the books to, um, to uh, retirement homes and to libraries and just, just giving them out and, and, you know, giving them to people, giving them the places and let people read them. And that's really what my hope is for the future is that readers have, readers have their choice in what they, in who, you know, what they pick and, and where they pick from and that authors have a choice in, who they go to have their books published. All right, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. Big takeaways from Robert. Yeah. Uh, I mean, JD kind of mentioned this when we were introducing him before the interview, but I, I think it was really interesting. It's, it's always interesting to me to hear different people's processes. Um, I, I know, you know, being with me and Jay being someone who wrote a book on outlining <laughs> and our <laughs> process, you know, one, one kind of misconception about us is that I, like some people I think feel like we're trying to say outlining is the best way or the only way I, I get that vibe sometimes, which is not all we're saying. We just say that's what works for us. And it's always interesting to hear the other side of that perspective, you know, and, and hearing 
here, like the idea, I, I know one thing he said in the interview was he kind of treats his first draft as an outline, which to me just gives me all kinds of anxiety because I just feel like I would have to do so much editing and, and do, you know, and, but, but it's, you know, everyone's different and everyone's process is a little bit different. And it was really interesting um, to, to hear his, his side of that. Well, he brought up, um, you know, something that, that Dean Koontz had told me a long time ago. You know, he used to outline and, you know, he always found that he would, you know, start the book and he would follow that outline for the first chapter or two. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, some idea would spark and you start going off in some other direction. And before you know it, that outline is out the window and, and your story is kind of taking on a life of its own. Um, and that's not the first time I've heard that. You know, you know I, I think that's the, the joy of, of being a pantser. I think that's the, the fun part of it. Um, that being said, I think even, you know, pantsers, and we had touched on this before to a certain extent they're outlining you know just as they're just not outlining the entire book you know like I know in my case I, I tend to think at least two or three chapters of where I'm physically writing but I'm always ahead of the game I, I never sit down at my, my computer and not know what I'm going to write next um, I'm trying to get better about actually organizing those thoughts because I think that's a, a huge portion of it you know just getting those you know those next chapters those ideas putting them in place um, you know whether you write them down in a note document or post-it note or whatever but just you know documenting all that and keeping that story moving forward I think is big. Um, you know, Jeffrey Deaver is probably, you know, one of the best examples as far as somebody that, that does outline very extensively. I mean, his outlines are anywhere from like 30 to a hundred pages long. Um, they're very, very strict. He's got that entire story totally mapped out. And for the most part, he doesn't, um, he doesn't move off that outline. Once he's got that outline done, like that's the story, that's the way it's going to go. And he, he knocks out that book fast. I mean, he'll write that novel in a month or two, um, because he's taken, you know, four or five, six months creating that outline. Um, so I think we're all, you know, basically doing the same thing. We're all you know, getting to that finish line just in, in different methods. Yeah, because I can tell you that having a, a hundred page outline gives me just as much anxiety as pantsing a book. <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah, it's just everyone's process is a little different, you know. I, I've been there, and, and honestly, in a lot of ways, it makes you a little bit lazy because, like, when I, you know, I, I wrote a book with Patterson where we worked a hundred percent off of his outline, and you know, I go on these these runs every day where I typically think about what I'm going to write next, and I've, you know, my my mind was empty. You know, there was nothing to think about. Like what, what I needed to write next was down on paper. Um, you know, so like I I got a little bit spoiled by that you know by the time you finish that book you know you're sitting down every day you know what's coming next everything's mapped out nice and easy for you you know then when I had to sit down and write another book you know where I didn't have an outline in front of me um you know, it was that much harder you know just like anything else with writing it's it's like exercise and you have to work that muscle and when you when you don't it, it gets weak well I, I think too that's one of the, the one of the one of the misconceptions when you tell someone you're a meticulous plotter is a lot of people take that as you never deviate from the outline, which isn't true. Like the outlines that Jay and I, when we've collaborated, and I know for me, you know, and we did pretty, we did really extensive outlines when we collaborated because we just felt like we had to. But the outline we started with was never the same as what we ended with. Like I would add in scenes, we'd take out scenes, like, you know, so, so we were still able to go along with the journeys we went, but we definitely had the main bullet points in place. So, yeah, I want to ask yeah. you guys uh, about one of uh, Robert's answers to my questions that really struck a chord with me. And it, it, it's not it's not something I've never heard before. But I think at this point in my life and my career, I, I just I, I it just really grabbed me. It was when I asked him about advice uh, in your 50s as he's turning 60. And he said, take uh, charge of your career and write the book you want to read. What's your guys' response to that? I mean, I'm honestly kind of doing that now. Like every book that I've written, it's always been because I like you know that particular story, and it's not out there; it doesn't exist yet. 
you know, so when I wrote um, Forsaken, you know, I, I wanted to tell something related to the, the witch trials. When I wrote Fourth Monkey, I, I was jonesing for a serial killer thriller and it didn't exist, at least not like that, you know, so I, I, I tend to write for myself, but I, I think everybody writes for, for somebody and, you know, and we got to mention King again because that's, that's we, we we're required by, by law now. Um, you know, he writes his books for, for his wife, for Tabitha, like he's, he's, he's said that before, like I think everybody writes for someone. Um, I think that's very helpful, you know, because in a way you're, you're sitting as an author, you're sitting around a campfire and you have to tell your story to somebody, you know, and I think it's important to understand who that somebody is. I think understanding who your audience is, that takes you a long way in this game. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, you know, there's definitely, you know, I'm writing what I want to write and what I do love to read, but there's some stories that I really want to tell, like that the books that I really would love to read that I can't necessarily find out there. And I think for me, and you'll probably think it's kind of a joke answer, but by the time I get to 50, I'm hoping I've kind of bought myself enough time to write some of those books. Like that's kind of the phase I feel like I'm in now where I'm building this very branded backlist and I'm kind of buying myself time to write some of the riskier ideas that, that, that I want to do, um, which are, are more of the books that I really want to read that aren't out there. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of my position on it. And I, but I, I love that perspective for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels in a way like I understand, I understand how it could be interpreted based on where you are in your career, because, yeah. you know, like, it, like you said, Zach, right now it's, it's wise for you to double down on what's paying the bills and, and yeah. not that you don't like writing that, but like, that's what I think Robert was saying is that. Like it, at a certain point, you almost have to abandon genre or expectations and write something that's uniquely you. And that, that's just been yeah. on my mind a lot recently. And, and it, it just really resonated. Well, I think it's important just to keep it fresh, you know, because if, if you're not happy with what you're what you're writing, that's, that's going to come across. You know, the readers are going to pick up on it, whether you want them to or not. So I think that whatever your next idea is, it's got to be something that you're, you know, you're really jonesing to put down on paper. Uh, I think these dec the decades fly by, you know, <laughs> I, re I remember doing this when I was in my teens and in my 20s and in my 30s. And, you know, I just turned 50 and I'm sure 60, you know, will feel like it's right around the corner. Um, but, you know, from a craft standpoint, I feel like I'm improving with with every single one of these books. And that's really all I can ask for. Yeah, totally agree. Neither of you guys look a day over 49. Thanks, man. So. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, it was great talk with Robert. He's such a pro, such a warm guy. And uh yeah, I really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of that, and hopefully uh, all of our listeners did as well. So uh, we have a special week up next week, don't we, J.D.? Yeah, so we've got our, our Q&A episode, and we've got a special. It's a twofer week. Um, speaking of nice guys, we've got Lee Child coming on. Um, which, we, you know, I, I didn't think this was going to happen because, you know, Lee is in, in a lot of ways he's retired. I think he's living on a ranch now in Wyoming. He's cattle farming or whatever it is he's doing out there. Uh, but he's he's willing to, to come on the air and talk to us about his new book, which is a, a project. It's a, a, a writing book, you know, on craft um, that he put together with the, the Mystery Authors of America. Um, some some great authors, you know, weighing in on this, but he, but he edited it. Um, and it's, you know, I've, I've read little bits of it so far and it, it's really good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you know, any any time we can talk to an icon, uh, you know, there's so much to learn. So that that's going to be really exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And two episodes of Writer's Inc. in one week. And two in one week. <laughs> I mean, it's going to get much better than that. <laughs> well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.